This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Hip pain is relatively common in both men and women. One study found slightly over 14% of adults 60 and over reported hip pain on most days. Osteoarthritis alone is thought to affect more than 30 million adults on a daily basis. And in addition to osteoarthritis, a variety of other causes of hip pain exist. We'll explore not only the typical, but some atypical presentations of osteoarthritis, as well as other conditions that commonly cause hip pain with Dr. Aaron Critch, an orthopedist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Aaron, welcome. Thank you very much, Daryl, for having me. Well, let's start with osteoarthritis, degenerative arthritis of the hip, relatively common. Uh, My practice is mostly elderly, and I see a fair number of patients with this. So let's go over first the classic presentation of hip osteoarthritis. Yeah, I think the important thing to remember as a clinician when you're approaching the hip, it's all about location, location, location. So that classic presentation would be that anterior groin pain, uh, pain in front of the hip. If you have more laterally based or more posteriorly based hip, those might be some of the more atypical presentations. But typically a patient would have groin pain that's been coming on for a chronic period of time. They might have flares with activity. Activities that would tend to bother the hip would be prolonged walking or prolonged standing. Oftentimes patients tell us that when they sit down or when they lay down, uh, their hip feels a lot better. So those are kind of the typical presentations for hip arthritis. So basically weight-bearing type pain, whether standing or walking, but it's pain standing on that hip. Yeah, and it will be for a variable amount of activity. It seems as the disease progresses, uh, pain will come on with a lower threshold of activity over time. Okay. How about some of the atypical presentations? I've been fooled a few times thinking it was something else, but what are the atypical presentations of arthritis in the hip? Yeah, they can be much more challenging. Um, Certainly pain can be focused laterally or sometimes posteriorly based uh, for hip arthritis. Lateral hip pain, we think more of a peritrochanteric pain syndrome or trochanteric bursitis, but we know that the hip joint can radiate pain there. And also posteriorly, I think buttock pain is one of the most challenging um, you know, problems that we approach in the clinic. Certainly arthritis can radiate pain there, but you have to think about back pathology, SI joint pathology, proximal hamstring, ischial bursitis. And oftentimes these conditions can overlap or coexist. So you have both intraarticular hip arthritis and extraarticular sources of pain. So I find that a good history uh, can very much be helpful. And I think something that's recently become a tool in our toolbox has been uh, differential injections in Mm -hmm. and around the hip. So I think our ultrasound colleagues are becoming more efficient and practical, and that can really help us kind of solve where exactly the pain generator is coming from. Mm I've had some patients who describe mild hip pain, but nothing extreme, and uh, I've ordered some x-rays, come to find out they've got very advanced degenerative arthritis, bone on bone, yet they've got minimal symptoms. And I've had others with rather significant symptoms, and you get an x-ray and there's minimal changes. What, what's the explanation for that? Yeah, I, I think that's really the million-dollar question. Um, you see patients all the time, you might pre-screen their x-ray, you think, oh, they're here for right hip pain, bone-on-bone arthritis, and just like you mentioned, it's actually the other hip that has a joint space remaining. This is one of the challenges for us. We don't 
truly understand the pain generator in arthritis? Is it synovitis or inflammation? Is it uh, overload of the bone? Is it bone edema? We don't have a good handle on this because it's so multifactorial. It's actually quite challenging to study. So the adage that I tell patients is we treat you and your symptoms and not necessarily the x-rays that we're seeing. Yeah. So obviously we don't recommend hip arthroplasty based just on the x-ray findings. If somebody's having minimal pain, that's not really a direction they would go if they're not having much uh, discomfort. That's right. I think it's it's all about treating their symptoms. I think a lot of patients, they have a deep-seated uh, fear, if you will, of causing more damage. So I think a lot of times in those cases, it's all about reassuring the patient mm-hmm. um, and really treating their symptoms. How do you determine the timing of a hip replacement? Yeah, I think it can be challenging. Um, I think really three factors that we look at. One is the severity of arthritis on the x-ray. I think the term bone-on-bone arthritis resonates with both providers and and patients alike. So we we really want to see those severe radiographic changes. Second is we want their symptoms to match those findings. So um, symptoms that really inhibit their quality of life. And for every patient that might be different, whether that's night pain or that's they can't walk more than a few blocks or do a meaningful activity. And then I think third is when non-operative management stops working. So there are a lot of effective non-operative management options, weight loss, activity modifications, judicious use of NSAIDs, uh, sometimes injections, physical therapy can all help. Mm-hmm. I can recall early in my practice when I would have a patient who was very really young, maybe had some trauma to the hip in the past and maybe had advanced osteoarthritis, maybe in their 40s or early 50s, and an, ortho, or an orthopedic procedure was not recommended because they felt that the hip arthroplasty had a you know, self-determined lifespan. Is that still true today? How long do the arthroplasties last? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. We do worry about the longevity of the prosthesis over time. And um, we've made some mistakes along the way in trying to improve that longevity. Um, a lot of people have heard about the metal on metal hips that where we tried to increase the life of the bearing surface and it had unintended consequences like metal ions, uh, metal reactions, uh, et cetera. So typically now for the bearing surfaces, we either use metal on plastic or sometimes ceramic on mm-hmm. plastic, uh, especially in a very young patient. And we counsel patients that typically they wear about 1% per year will fail, whether that's for loosening, whether that's for wear of the bearing surface, uh, infections, other things like that. So 20 years down the road, um, 80% will be in place and doing well. It's just hard to know if that patient's going to be in the 20% or in the 80%. But I would say overall, if symptoms are severe, if radiographic changes are severe, um, then even at a young age, we do consider hip replacement Mm -hmm. for patients. I imagine there's kind of a sweet spot where you'd look, you'd like the patient to be in relatively good health and not wait till they accumulate a lot of chronic diseases, but you don't want to do it too early, so you'd have to revise this thing in the future. Yeah, the good, ne- the good news about hip replacement is that, you know, the success rate is 90 to 95%, and it tends to be a very durable procedure. Um, so in most cases, uh, once symptoms dictate treatment, we are taking the next step to joint replacement. Have there been many advances in arthroplasties? Yeah, I would say in general uh, for joint replacement surgery of the lower extremity, including hip and knee, it's really been the patient experience that's advanced over the past 10 years. Um, When I was in training, I think it was a very painful procedure. 
Patients spend a lot of time in the hospital. They got a lot of intravenous opioid medications, so a lot of nausea. And you, you frankly, you heard a lot of horror stories about the patient experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I think over the past 10 years, uh, we've decreased hospital stays uh, through working with our, our pain management colleagues in anesthesia. We really take a multimodal approach to pain management. Oftentimes, patients' stays in the hospital are reduced to one or two nights. In some places around the country, they're actually doing outpatient uh, total uh, hip and knee replacements, if you can believe it. Uh, but really, we're more assertive with physical therapy. We get people up. We get people moving sooner. So I think overall, patients have a much better acute experience mm-hmm. going through their, their hip replacement. I think the most common response I get to patients when I'm seeing them post-op is, man, the procedure was much less than I expected. I wish I had done this years ago. Yeah, we hear that a lot, and I think uh, especially in this area with a lot of stoic people coming in, they put up with right. severe symptoms for a long period of time, and then once that pain is relieved, they, they're very happy. How about the patient who maybe isn't quite ready for a surgery, uh, maybe the, they should wait another few years? Are steroid injections of any benefit? Um, they certainly can be. Uh, I think the hard part is we're throwing a short-term solution at a chronic long-term problem. Um, my advice about steroids are save them for when you need them. Uh, so as we know with arthritis symptoms, they tend to wax and wane over time. And when patients are having a flare of arthritis, it's certainly reasonable uh, to consider a cortisone injection. They're successful about 80 to 90% of patients. Uh, they tend to last for about six weeks. Uh, so again, we try to use them judiciously. Mm-hmm. In contrast to the knee, uh, there really aren't other FDA-approved injection options like hyaluronic acid. Right. Um, the knee, there's also been a longer acting uh, cortisone uh, preparation. Trade name is Zoretta. Hopefully that will be available in the hip soon. Uh, that tends to last up to three months with the triamcinolone microspheres. So we're, we're hopeful that there will be other options in the future for injecting the hip. Mm-hmm. One term that I've seen more and more, and maybe it's related to the fact that we're using MRIs more, but the idea of a labral tear. How does that fit in with osteoarthritis of the hip? Yeah, that's a great question. I think MRI is really advanced. We're really getting some nice images of the hip now. And we are seeing labral tears very commonly. So patients over the age of 40, about two-thirds on an MRI will actually have a labral tear. And certainly once we have an arthritic hip, 100% of hips will have a labral tear on the MRI. So I think once we already see radiographic changes, joint space narrowing, uh, essentially, those findings will trump the, the labral tear, if you will, and we treat the hip as more arthritis. Mm-hmm. Now, when there's a labral tear without arthritis, um, symptoms can present similarly. Uh, it's often that anterior groin pain. In contrast to the arthritic hip, which is more pain with weight bearing and loading, uh, these hips will actually have more pain with sitting or hip flexion, such as squatting, lunges, because what's happening is they're pinching that labrum you know, between the, the ball and the socket. They'll actually sometimes report improvement when they walk or they stand and they kind of offload the pinching or the hip flexion. So should we be ordering an MRI for patients who have somewhat atypical hip symptoms? Yeah, I think if you're um, having difficult diagnosing or if you're really not seeing a lot of arthritis on the x-ray, the patient's younger, they've tried some initial non-operative management, those would be times to consider ordering the MRI, which can be very helpful. Okay. Now, another term that I came across in the literature is uh, femoral acetabular impingement. Now, I don't think I can spell that. I certainly know I wouldn't be able to diagnose it. What is this? 
Yeah, so uh, this FAI or femoral impingement uh, is really a condition that develops most often in teenagers. Uh, and it's basically abnormal contact between the ball and the socket. And what happens when the growth plates are open, uh, basically the periosteum is stimulated and they grow extra bone or bone spurs in the hip. Now, this might not be diagnosed until patients are in their 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, we really didn't even recognize this 20 years ago. People would show up in their 40s with bone-on-bone arthritis, and now we realize that it's the femoral acetabular impingement. But what the impingement leads to over time is tearing of the labrum and uh, basically destruction of their articular cartilage. So it's important if you have a patient where this is suspected, so again, that would be anterior groin pain, sitting pain, on exam, they might have decreased internal rotation, but otherwise preserved range of motion. That would be a time to think about getting an MRI, trying to diagnose it, because if we can successfully recognize it, these can be treated very well early on. Okay. Another term I came across is hip dysplasia. How do we diagnose that? Yeah, so hip dysplasia is essentially under coverage on the socket side or a shallow socket. And obviously, severe cases of dysplasia will be diagnosed um, sometimes in babies or very young pediatric patients. But the more mild forms of dysplasia actually won't be diagnosed until patients are in their 30s, 40s, 50s. We know that it is more common in females, but we can certainly see it in males as well. Um, And we worry about dysplasia because it not only leads to tearing of the labrum, but also leads to early arthritis as well. It's really one of those structural problems that can lead to early arthritis in young adults. So it's important to recognize it. It's often diagnosed uh, on x-ray. We can see the undercoverage of the socket. Patients can have some similar groin types of pain in the front of the hip, but they sometimes have more global pain. So you'll see they have more lateral hip pain, more of kind of an overload syndrome uh, for the hip that's worse with weight bearing. Sometimes they'll be involved in activities that require more hip flexibility, like our gym, gymnasts, dancers, um, figure skaters, um, other times not. But those are all clues that you might be dealing with a hyperlax hip dysplasia. Okay. Now, let's talk about another condition that's relatively common, um, that's trochanteric bursitis. I'd say uh, of all my patients that come in, this is probably the second most common cause, secondary, or second to uh, osteoarthritis, but I'm always glad when the patients seem to have symptoms suggestive of trochanteric bursitis because that's often quite treatable with uh, excellent results compared to osteoarthritis. Talk a little bit about trochanteric bursitis. Yeah, so trochanteric bursitis I think is poorly understood. Uh, We don't always understand the cause. Certainly we know it's more common in females, but certainly uh, males can present with trochanteric bursitis as well. And I think over time we've recognized that maybe it's not only the bursitis, but it can be tendinosis in the gluteus medius or minimus. Uh, Sometimes it's calcific tendinitis, other entities that cause the lateral hip pain. But I think the key is uh, recognition. As you mentioned, it is very treatable with non-operative management. Oftentimes working on physical therapy to strengthen uh, the abductors of the hip can be very beneficial. Occasionally, uh, sometimes an injection will help as well. Uh, The good news is that 80 to 90% of it is Mm -hmm. short-lived and can benefit from treatment. The other 10 to 20% that's recalcitrant is a little bit more of a challenge. Yeah. Now, in in my experience, the the clues that patients seem to give me that lead me towards stroke and bursitis is that the pain doesn't always seem to be weight-bearing, but more related just to leg movement or maybe pain lying on that hip, but not so much pain with walking as uh, osteoarthritis. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, I would say that's, uh, that's one of my go-to questions is, do you have pain when you sleep on the hip at night? 
I find the other question that's discerning is they typically have pain going upstairs. I think they get a little bit more friction of their IT band, tensor fasciae over the trochanter, so it tends to irritate it. But I agree, level walking and mm-hmm. other activities don't seem to bother it too much. Okay. So trochanteric bursitis is not the only bursitis of the hip. Uh, tell us a little bit about iliopsoas bursitis. Yeah, so I think iliopsoas bursitis can present as a spectrum. Um, so in some hips, this can present as snapping. Uh, patients will describe a popping or sometimes a catching in the hip. And what's interesting is about a third of adults actually have a snapping iliopsoas tendon. Uh, now the difference is most of the time it's not painful. When it is painful, it's often associated uh, with a bursitis. Sometimes it just requires activity modification. Uh, For example, patients will get pain getting in and out of a car, in and out of bed, so they can control the snapping just by altering that movement. Other times it can require a short course of anti-inflammatories or physical therapy to work on the bursitis component of the Mm -hmm. iliopsoas. Okay. Another condition I've seen probably too often in my elderly patients, especially those who've had a fall, is a stress fracture in the hip area. Tell us a little bit about those. So stress fractures um, are relatively common in the hip, and it's not just the elderly as well. Um, It can be in younger patients. It's really an overuse or repetitive microtrauma uh, phenomenon, and certainly in the older population that can be from osteopenia, osteoporosis, you certainly want to look for those risk factors. We find that in younger patients, it tends to be um, following a period of increased activity. So they're starting to train for a marathon, increase their running distance. The classic will be a military recruit actually about six weeks through basic training, uh, something like that. Usually there's an identifiable risk factor for that increased repetitive stress. Key is to recognize it. If they're having pain with uh, weight bearing, need to get them on crutches, diagnose them, look for risk factors, nutrition status, bone status, other um, things that we can improve to prevent recurrence of a stress fracture. Now, in some of the patients I've seen when it's following a fall is these things may not show up immediately on x-ray, just like pelvic stress fractures. So if you don't see something immediately and they continue to have pain, repeat the x-ray and how long? Yeah, I think you you could repeat the x-ray. Typically, the findings don't uh, really take effect for four to six weeks. And sometimes that might be too late. So if you really suspect it, uh, they're having pain with weight bearing, uh, it's improved with rest, and you really suspect that stress fracture, I would say an MRI would be your best diagnostic tool. Mm -hmm. Um, You never want to miss one that could be treated. We have seen cases of stress factors that went on to completed fractures um, just by continued weight bearing through that area. Mm, Okay. And then finally, let's talk a little bit about osteonecrosis of the hip. Yeah, so osteonecrosis or avascular necrosis of the hip um, is, you know, we definitely see it. Uh, You'll see it in your practice. Uh, That's where there's a little bit of disruption of the blood supply to a focal area of the femoral head. Typically, we see that in three conditions. One is in trauma. So someone can have a hip subluxation or dislocation. They actually affect the blood supply to the femoral head. That's the so-called Bo Jackson injury, uh, where his career was ended Mm -hmm. by avascular necrosis and subsequent collapse. Um, Second most common, we see it in patients that require prednisone use for a chronic period of time. Um, Maybe cancer patients, maybe chronic disease and illness where they're on high-dose prednisone. And then the third case we see it are in patients with alcohol abuse uh, that we still will diagnose. 
but there are 25% of cases where we don't really find an etiology or primary cause. Uh, but there are different options to treat it now. Uh, surgically, uh, we're doing you know some bone decompressions. We can often save the femoral head. In other cases, with collapse, uh, requires total hip replacement. But I think the key is to recognize it and treat it. Okay. Finally, could you give us maybe three or four key points that are important regarding hip pain? Yeah, so for me, approaching the hip, it's all about location, location, location. So I think pain in the groin and the anterior part of the hip, think about arthritis, think about labral tears, think about things inside the joint. Lateral hip pain tends to be that perichoconteric pain syndrome. Posteriorly, uh, you have to create a little bit more of a differential diagnosis. Um, I find in those challenging cases that diagnostic and differential injections with ultrasound can be very helpful. And the good news with a lot of these hip conditions, they do respond to good non-operative management. So the key is to recognize, treat early. Uh, when in doubt, uh, call a friendly orthopedist. We can help out. We've been discussing the various causes of hip pain with Dr. Aaron Critch, an orthopedist at the Mayo Clinic. Aaron, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you very much for having me. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.